Isaiah 25 is a hymn of praise, a, a song of triumph by Isaiah. It's very personal. Verse 1, I will exalt you. You are my God. I will praise your name. For you've done wonderful things, things planned long ago in complete faithfulness and truth. He's glorifying the fact that God has fulfilled his word, that all God's prophetic word has come true. Just to remind you how the book of Isaiah starts, there's Assyria coming up like a river against Judah and has flooded over its banks and has taken all these cities of Judah and Jerusalem is left on its own and it seems, and we looked at Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9, that there within Jerusalem was a tiny remnant based around Isaiah and his prophetess wife and his three or four sons. And possibly Hezekiah was one of his spiritual children and he said in Isaiah 8 that he is now sort of going to shut down his ministry and wait upon the Lord. And he talks about him and the children whom God has given him, his disciples, and they could be his literal children or it could refer to his spiritual converts. But they were a tiny minority. Throughout Isaiah we've read how corrupt Jerusalem was. Not just Judah, but Jerusalem in particular. They had become Isaiah 1 as a harlot, etc. And so there's Isaiah and this tiny remnant. And again in Isaiah 1, that really Jerusalem should have been treated as Sodom because she was as Sodom. But for the sake of that tiny remnant in Jerusalem, she was saved. And now Isaiah is praising God for bringing to pass all his uh, wonderful promises about his people. And it's tempting to try to interpret this chapter as referring to God's amazing deliverance of Jerusalem when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against Jerusalem. And uh, amazingly, the angel came out and slew 185,000 of the, of the Assyrians and Jerusalem was saved. And one can't deny that there are elements in this that do look forward to that or that could be applicable to that. For example, verses 3 and 4 talks about a strong people and God being a stronghold to the needy. Hezekiah, who was the king, of course, at the time, means made strong by God. And the first part of his name is really there in those words translated strong and stronghold. And then you have him uh, rejoicing, uh, verse 4, about how this great victory has been won and how God has been a refuge. And, of course, that's in a sense what was in Jerusalem because the, the faithful ran into Jerusalem. And that's why three times it talks about the victory in this mountain. In verse uh, 6, in this mountain... Yahweh of armies will make to all people a feast of fat things. Verse 7, he will destroy in this mountain. And then in verse 10, in this mountain. And he means Mount Zion, where Isaiah was living, in the Temple Mount, uh, the hand of Yahweh will rest. So, yes, you could apply this to that deliverance. And verse 5, God bring, will bring down the noise or the voice of strangers maybe you're talking about the voice of Rabshaki outside the walls of Jerusalem and uh, verse, uh, verse 8 he will take the reproach of his people away from off all the earth that is all the, the land the land promised to Abraham and we do have a reference uh, in, uh, in Isaiah 37 to the, the reproach that was made against um, 
against Israel's God by the Assyrians. That's in Isaiah 37 verse 3, if you want to just quickly look over to that. Um, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke. And that rebuke was taken away, of course, when the Assyrians were were destroyed. Uh, But it's quite clear that the whole chapter has got a a wider uh, reference which did not come true in Isaiah's day. And you can see that particularly in in verse 8, that God has swallowed up death forever. The Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from off all faces. Both those phrases, as you know, are quoted in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15:58, about how death will be taken away fully at Christ's return. And then in Revelation 7, uh, it's quoted about God wiping away tears from our full faces when the Lord Jesus returns. And of course, verse 9, this is our God, we've waited for him. And now he's come and saved us. And at the end of verse 9, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That word salvation is literally his Jesus, his Yahshua. And so it seems very much to have in mind the the coming of Jesus. Now, why then is Isaiah talking in the past tense, verse 1 and so forth, as if this has all happened at his time? Well, it seems to me that it could have been that the kingdom of God could have been established at that time. And that in the destruction of the Assyrians, you would have had the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where God laughs at the enemies surrounding Zion, etc. The whole thing could have come true at that time. Just as we we mentioned in Isaiah 9, when we talked about Isaiah 9, the the whole prophecies about to us a a son is given, a a child is born, uh, Emmanuel. Well, yes, you could take that as being Isaiah's child. Emmanuel, um, God with us, etc. But it seems to me that that child could have been, or one of Isaiah's children, could have been the messianic king, and all this could have come true at his time, but it didn't. And this is a major theme. I see it more and more in the Bible, that God set up certain potentials which could have come true, but they did not. And that is uh, how I I see all this, that it could have come true, but it didn't. And this is a tragedy, really, in human life, that God has set up so many potentials for all of us. And it must be pretty tragic being God, because so many of those potentials don't come true, because we don't allow them to come, come true. And in one sense, Bible history and much of the Bible is just that, history, is the history of those uh, failed uh, possibilities. And the encouraging thing, I suppose, is that God still worked through them. But it's all pretty tragic, because one's left with broken bits and pieces, rather like after a a, a battle or after some great uh, catastrophe. Uh, And God is all the time picking up bits and pieces and trying to put it together and propelling his purpose forward and of course he is never finally defeated Um, but so much could have happened all the same why the past tenses for example verse 2 you've made a city into a heap a fortified city into a ruin never to be rebuilt well that didn't really happen with Assur 
uh, of Assyria. Assur did not become uh, a heap, never to be rebuilt at that time, unless you understand a city here purely figuratively as talking about a, a power. Um, <clears throat> why does he talk in the past tense? I think, in one sense, yes, he, he, he did see so much being fulfilled uh, in the destruction of the Assyrian army, but also he is so confident that although things have not gone as they should have gone, in terms of Hezekiah himself turning away, as it seems to me, with the business of the ambassadors from Babylon, and Jerusalem being so unfaithful to, to God as a city, let alone the rest of Judah being so un, unfaithful, it seems to me that he knows that ultimately it will all come true, despite all the failed possibilities, one day it will all come true, and he's so sure of that that he can speak, as it were, in the past tense, in what uh, people into grammar would call the prophetic perfect, talking about something yet future as if it has already happened. Now, <clears throat> He talks in verses 3 and 4 about how a strong people will glorify you. The city of awesome nations, this is um, Jerusalem, because you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy. Who are these strong people? The people of Hezekiah, the, uh, the one whom Yahweh made strong, Yahweh's strength. But who were that strong people? Who was that strong people? Who were these strong people inside Jerusalem? Well, it was a tiny remnant. And how are they strong? See, in one sense, verse 4, they are the poor and needy. In spiritual terms, they are the weak people, but they have been made strong because God has been a stronghold to them. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, at that time, at the time of Hezekiah, it's written, laughed at the Assyrians. Well, that's very exaggerated language. I'm sure they were not laughing in self-confidence at all. That tiny daughter of Zion, that tiny remnant of faithful, were fearful. But they were seen in God's eyes as being so strong. And I think that is how it is with us today, that we also are seen by God as far stronger than we are. And so this invasion, which is likened in verse uh, 4 as a blast of the dreaded ones, the Assyrians, like a storm against the wall. Yes, you can apply it to um, the Assyrians coming up against the wall of Jerusalem. But the whole language of being a refuge from a storm, a shade from heat, uh, etc. And verse 5, as the heat in a dry place, you will bring down the noise of strangers as the heat by the shade of a cloud the song of the dreaded ones will be brought low. That all pretty well sounds like the mushroom cloud of nuclear war, and it would seem to me to be pointing forward to a far greater uh, situation in our last days. Now, he talks there in, in verse 4 about how God has been a strength, a stronghold uh, to the poor, and a refuge, a strength and a refuge. Same two Hebrew words in Joel 3.17, speaking of how this is going to come true in the very last days, in Jerusalem. So, really, ultimately, this is the hymn of praise that will be on the lips of the faithful when finally, when finally, the Lord Jesus has come, Jerusalem, surrounded by armies, has been saved from the Assyrian invader, who would seem to me to be some uh, confederacy of uh, Middle Eastern powers, Arab powers, certainly 
Islamic powers, and when finally Israel is brought to its knees, that tiny remnant in Jerusalem, for their sakes, Israel will be saved, and God will openly reveal himself in the person of his son. That's why there's a lot of emphasis, as I've said, on this mountain. Verse 6, in this mountain. Verse 7, he will destroy in this mountain. Verse 10, for in this mountain the hand of Yahweh will rest. It is very much talking about a return of the Lord Jesus to Mount Zion. And at that time, verse 6, he will make to all peoples a feast of fat things, of choice wines, fat things full of marrow, well-refined choice wines. And the covering of, of death, the veil that covers all peoples, will be taken away, because he will swallow up death forever. So then the all peoples, I think, means people from all nations, not literally every human being has ever lived. And this, of course, talks, uh, as I would see it, about the faithful from all nations. And we are the ones who will drink these fat things, these uh, choice wines that are full of marrow, well-refined choice, choice wines. The thing that all those descriptions have in common in verse 6 is that this wine has been long prepared. So then we will each receive in God's kingdom when we break bread, and it seems to me literally, again with the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem, we will receive a blessing that has been carefully prepared over a very long period for us personally. The inheritance that we're looking forward to in God's kingdom is not simply eternity, like, wow, I don't have to die anymore, because eternity, just as eternity, would actually be a huge curse if we were to cough and hack our way through existence like we do at the moment for literal eternity. That would not be any fun at all. Just imagine living in the house that you now live in for the next, uh, you know, 20 zillion years. Um, it just wouldn't be. Uh, and yet God has prepared a wonderful future. And so when he will say to us in the last day, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, this means that God has thought up a wonderful future of the most wonderful nature for each of us. And that's a wonderful thing. That really is a wonderful thing, that he has thought up that wonderful future for, for each of us. And we really can rejoice in that. The Lord Jesus said he would not take the the fruit of the vine again until he takes it again with us in his father's kingdom rather like the, the Jewish high priest not being able to drink wine whilst he was on duty in the most holy place so I would see what we're doing now the breaking of bread being a tiny foretaste of that future day when we shall again do this with each other and of course above all with the Lord Jesus in person when finally faith our faith in his invisible presence at the breaking of bread shall be turned to sight. So he will destroy in that mountain, at that place, there in Jerusalem, the covering that covers all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations, uh, perhaps uh, alluding to the veil that's draped over a body or over a coffin, that finally death will be destroyed. Now death is described here as a veil. It's a rather odd. Um, but it seems to me that the fear of death, psychologically, is what veils people from seeing spiritually. Hebrews 2 talks about those who, through fear of death, 
have all their lifetime been subject to bondage. The bondage that people are in outside of Christ is a bondage psychologically connected with fearing death. Although people will say, I don't fear death, unconsciously, unspokenly, there is that fear of death. And it's that that holds people back. And that will finally be taken away. So it's not just that death will be taken away, but that fear of death and that veil that covers our eyes, that sense that, uh, as I say, often unexpressed and not articulated, but that psychological awareness, very, very deep awareness that I am mortal, that I also shall go the way of all the earth, that I also shall die that I also shall be passé, that one day there will be my name on a gravestone if I am lucky enough to get a gravestone. And it will all just go. All that I have fought for and all that I have become and all that I have been and all those that I loved and those who loved me and hated me and the rest of it, that all this shall pass. And that is a veil that is over people's eyes. Now, if we are secured in Christ, and we are sure that, yes, I have been baptized into Christ, yes, I have uh, the, the sure hope of resurrection with him, because I am directly connected with him, then this veil, even in this life, that fear of death, that bondage, starts to pass away. It starts to be lifted. Now, he, that is God, verse 8, has swallowed up death forever. Uh, the Hebrew for swallowed up there is Exactly the same word in verse 7, translated, he will destroy. He will destroy this covering, he will destroy death forever. That's why I'm saying that the veil or the covering is death itself. And the, the Hebrew, although it's translated here in some versions, that destroy, it does mean that, to swallow up, which is uh, a strange figure. That's how it's normally actually translated throughout its usage in the Old Testament. Because to swallow something up is to take it into yourself. God, in that sense, has taken death into himself. And he did that by his very intense manifestation in his son at the time of his son's dying. That in the cross, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Not that God, of course, himself died for, for 72 hours or three days, or however you want to take it, um, it's not that God died himself, but that he was so involved in the death of his son that it was as if he took death right into himself. And that means that our experience of death, both you know, our own facing of our own mortality and our mourning and our struggling to cope with the, the loss of those whom we love, God is not separate from us in that because he was in Christ in his death on the cross, and he has overcome death by taking it in that sense into himself, by swallowing it up. The Lord will wipe away tears from off all faces. Well, as I say, that's quoted in Revelation about what will happen. It's as if we each have our personal grief. Now, the figure of drying someone's eyes, this is what you do to children. You don't literally wipe the tears from the face of an adult. You comfort them. Um, it's as if, as we come to the Day of Judgment in Jerusalem, in that mountain, Mount Zion, and we're granted eternity, we will be as children. We will feel as little children. And it could uh, almost imply that we will not 
sort of instantaneously sort of arise to God's level of maturity, although we have, uh, will have his nature and will be immortal. Yet that does not preclude the possibility of tears, or the sheer emotion of the whole thing, that all this should be taken away by a very direct personal uh, relationship between God and us at that time. Verse 9, And it shall be said in that day, This is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation, his Yehoshua, his Jesus. For in this mountain the hand of Yahweh will rest. Understand the hand of Yahweh resting being a picture of his manifestation, a metaphor for his manifestation. And in this mountain all this is going to happen. I, I know some of you will think I'm going too far here, but I will say anyway, uh, as I do, um, what, what I think this means to me. And to me this means that God himself shall appear on earth. That there will be a personal meeting between us and God. This is what Job looked forward to. I know that in my flesh I shall see God, and my eyes shall see him, and not another. This is the light at the end of the tunnel. And yes, I do believe that God exists not as a puff of, quote, spirit, but as a personal being. I, I believe that all existence that is spoken of in the Bible, including that of God, is in a bodily form in, in some, some way. And that we will say these words to someone. Behold, this is our God, the one we waited for. This is Yahweh. We waited for him, and here he is. When he says that we will say, this is our God, of course it links back to verse 1, where, where Isaiah himself says, Yahweh, you are my God. I will praise you. I will exalt you. So he's saying that the faithful will have his, that is Isaiah's, attitude. And who are we going to say this to? Because these words are words spoken surely to someone. This is our God, we waited for him, he will save us. Now, it seems to me then that this uh, God, who is spoken of here, um, can be God personally, he can be Jesus, uh, or God in Jesus, um, but I would argue that it's slightly separate, the two ideas are separate. We will be glad and rejoice in his, that is Yahweh's salvation, in his Jesus. Um, Whatever, there will be a literal manifestation of God on earth. Maybe God himself, maybe God in the person of Jesus. And the point is that we shall say to others, here he is, this is Yahweh, this is the one we waited for. And as he says in, in verse 1, all these things that God planned long ago in complete faithfulness and truth he has done. So in that day, we shall be saying, to this world, to the people that we have lived with, worked with, etc. You see, God's word was true. There is a God. And those two basic things, that the Bible is God's word, and that all these old words of the prophets really shall come true, and that there is a God, 
those two fundamental things which are, are so central to basic faith, faith in God and in, in his word, we will then finally realize that, yes, I did believe that, and it has come true, and the people to whom we shall say this are aware that, yes, that was what we believed. And so, <clears throat> faith will be rewarded. Now, getting back to Isaiah, he said back in Isaiah 8, verse 17, that he was sort of shutting down shop, and I and my children and my disciples, we will seal the word, and I will wait for him. And here, Isaiah and his group are saying, yes, our God will appear, we have waited for him. But the idea of waiting, you also encounter in other places in Isaiah. You can have a look at them at your leisure. 26 verse 8, 33 verse 2, and especially Isaiah 59 verses 9 and 11. Where the righteous remnant feel they've waited for the Lord, but he's not acted as they expected. Because after the Assyrian defeat, the kingdom was not established as they expected. So then, the point is, I think, that although there were all these possible, possible fulfillments, <clears throat> they didn't come true, we waited for him and it didn't work out as we expected, but now finally, we kept on waiting, and despite all those disappointments in our own lives, the misbehavior, failure of, of others, etc., and the failure of Israel to repent, as they should have done, Finally, we have waited, and it has come true. I think that's why in verse 8, <clears throat> he has swallowed up death forever. And that's quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, Paul says there, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And I think the emphasis might be on the word then. As if he's implying, well, it could have come through before, but it didn't. But then, in that day, then shall be brought to pass. This saying that is written here, that death shall finally be swallowed up. And it will finally come true, despite all the delays in this great divine project, as it were, of saving us. As he's desperately tried to not manipulate, not force not treat us as puppets, give us free will. Finally, it will all come true, and we'll be saying those very words.